Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. So glad you're joining us. My name is Andy Moore. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined by your other host, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. Hey, man. How are you? I am like sad and tired today. <laughs> this That's I, my... <laughs> this is, we're back to that point, right? Every yeah. every Zoom call I've had this week, everyone's like, how's things going in Oklahoma? I'm like, y- y- you know, how are things wherever you are? Uh, ah, and we we just don't know how to... It was getting better, and now it's not again, and it sucks. But we don't want to start calls with, like, everything sucks. Sorry, listeners, we're starting the podcast with everything sucks. Yeah, you know, I – and we'll talk more, like, in our COVID update here in a a few minutes. I – so every day at the office, like, in my office where my my desk and workspace are – I um I have tried to have music playing all the time for me. Right, it's yeah, just we, something that's a very like helps me kind of get through the get through the day. And it my our staff will say you can tell what Dr. Melson's mood is based on either the kind like kind of what the music he's playing, or you can tell what day of the week it is. Um and oftentimes, not every Friday, but oftentimes on Fridays I'll have I'm an assortment of nineties playlists. Um, because like, let's be honest, that's where the great music of our generation comes from. Yes. The sixties and the nineties. And so, uh, today I had a nineties playlist pacing and there's, there's a song from like 90, 1994, 95 by Desiree called you gotta be right. Oh yeah. It's, I have this on several playlists. You gotta be strong. You gotta be something. That's, that's That's the one. Oh, I know. So, um, Whenever I hear that song, I actually believe it or not, I think of the Oklahoma City bombing. So in the days after the bombing, um, every radio station kind of did their thing. At the time, I listened to mostly KJ103. That was like the top 40 like pop station of of choice for me at that time. And they their morning show throughout the day... For for a long time after the bombing, they just took calls. Like people would just call in and like talk about whatever they were, whatever they were thinking, whatever they were feeling. Um, but when they stopped taking calls, they would play that song. Like that was the one like song that they would that they would play. And so I get like uh, I just remember that time whenever I hear that song. And today it made me really sad. Not so much thinking about the bombing, but thinking of that immediate aftermath where. I mean, and I was a kid, right? And like, obviously, everything gets made into politics, and there's, you know, whatever. But like, for me, that song makes me think of a time where at least my perception was like, we're all in this together. Like, everyone is like, everyone is hurt, and everyone is sad, and everyone doesn't understand. But there was like this period of time where it felt like we were all, we were all trying to get through it, like with each other. And it, it just made me really sad today thinking about that that's doesn't feel like what we're doing now. Right. Like that's what we sh- like what we could have done and what we should have done, but like we didn't. Um, and there's like a lot of reasons behind that. Like you can, I don't think you can point to just one thing or one person, but you know, as we're seeing the situation that's unfolding in Oklahoma and surrounding States and other places in the country, it just made me think like, man, like what if we had just all, said we're gonna do this like together like whatever it takes how different the landscape would be right now that's exactly right so that's so that's where i'm at <laughs> to answer, to answer your question how... to like uh sarah mclaughlin or mazzy star or something like very slow and slightly depressed uh nothing wrong with that those are great great artists and i uh but that's that's gonna be my mood i'm making um, salmon for dinner tonight and uh I, I always I try to match a playlist to the the meal in my mood when I cook and I guess tonight maybe I'll do a, a Mazzy Star playlist. Anywho, all right. Well, I'm going to try to pick up the energy a little bit uh, for the sake of our listeners, so we can talk with enthusiasm about terrible news. Right. So this week, uh, <laughs> two headlines that we're going to uh, I, not necessarily glance over, but we'll address and then we can talk about it or not. And then we're going to get into a COVID update and then an interview with our guest, State Senator Julia Kurt, here in just a moment. Uh, Senator, you can say hello. We'll acknowledge that you're already here with us. Hi. Hey. Glad to be here. <laughs> there she is. All right, great. So um, two newsworthy bits. Again, this is the 
in some ways, the legislative off-season, although, as we'll discuss later, not necessarily in all the ways. Uh, And so I think, on the whole, Oklahoma state political news is a little bit slower than it is normally. But some big things this week. One, just today, just a little while ago, before we recorded this episode, newly appointed Attorney General John O'Connor filed a formal petition with the Supreme Court of the United States asking them formally to overturn the McGirt ruling. Their, I would say their McGirt ruling. The, the court's the one who issued that ruling. And as I think we've discussed quite a bit on the show, the Supreme Court is not as likely known for overturning their own rulings just months later. I don't. I haven't gone back to look, but I can't think of any time they've done that. So uh, good luck to him and Governor Stitt on this quest. Shortly after he the news broke that he had filed that petition, the chief of the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin Jr., issued a statement saying, quote, with today's ruling in uh, Bossy versus Oklahoma, they have made it clear that this was never about protecting victims or stopping crime, but simply advancing an anti-Indian political agenda, which is a... Um, uh, Chief Hoskins has a way of uh, just getting right to the point of it. Uh, and so I appreciate his, he doesn't mince words uh, on his statements. Scott, do you have any thoughts about uh, no. General O'Connor's petition here? Yeah, no, not, um, not, not, <laughs> no, is the short answer. I mean, there's nothing, nothing more than what we've, what we've talked about. You know, I mean, this was this case, um, whatever you think about the decision, the case was decided last year, right? Like this was a case that is, was, 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 I mean, the arguments were done in, uh, over zoom because everything was still being done, uh, not in person. Like this is not some decision from, you know, in the distant past, the makeup of the court is different. You know, the decision, the, the, uh, the coalition of justices that decided, that decided the case um, was five to four with the um, quote unquote liberal block um, being joined by justice Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion. Um, so obviously I think if, I think if the case was heard today, you would, you would, you would probably have a different decision, right? I think it'd be five, four going the other way, but the case wasn't heard today, right? It was heard last year. Um, and there's a recent case in uh, uh, regarding abortion law where there was a petition, I think, from Texas. It's either Texas or Louisiana. I forget which one. Where they they essentially did the same thing. They brought the exact same. Not they didn't just straight ask the court to overturn their previous ruling, but they brought a very similar case. Uh, and the Supreme Court even declined to hear it with Justice Roberts writing, "Look, we're not going to hear this case because we heard essentially this exact case three or four years ago, and we ruled on this." And he and he even said in his he said in his orders like or his whatever you call it I don't call it an order I'm not a lawyer, um, but he said in his his uh, his opinion it's like believe me I think that we got that case wrong he's like I disagree with the decision but it was our decision and we're not going to revisit that you know three years later so I'm curious what the eternal attorney general thinks is the strategy for getting the court to revisit McGirt um, less than a year after it was decided. I on a on a personal level, I wonder how the court would feel about it, um, given the fact that uh, Attorney General O'Connor was someone who was, as we discussed last week, deemed unqualified by the American Bar Association to be a federal judge, and so to have the highest judges in the land say, "Oh, you're going to submit a, a request on this, okay, buddy," um, that seems like a I don't know if it's a slap in the face, but we'll see what happens. But you're right. Be- for a court, right? The whole the whole way that our law happens in America is by precedent, right? So we have rulings and those rulings as time moves on become the precedent and that gets factored into the law. And so the Supreme Court, which carries enormous weight, is not likely to overturn something they just did um, because that by doing that, that would set precedent for them being asked to revisit all of their decisions, right? And it's yeah. like, uh, it's the old adage of don't do once what you don't want to do forever. Right. Kind of thing, which uh, pertains to dogs and, and kids, I believe, <laughs> and also uh, Supreme Court cases. 
the the other news bit that I'm sure all of our listeners saw this week, good golly, uh, it was just terrible, and we're not really going to discuss it because I don't want to give them that much airtime, but it is worth noting, I think, that the chairman of the Oklahoma Republican Party, John Bennett, uh, issued a just a truly terrible statement that equated vaccination records, essentially, right? I think they call them vaccine passports, but we all have a vaccine record that we've had since we were kids. You have to use it to get jobs and schools and all kinds of stuff, uh, or attend school. So it basically equated vaccination records with the Star of David patches that the Nazis forced the Jews to wear during the Holocaust, which is a uh, incorrect and a completely terrible uh, uh, comparison there. And then he doubled down on it like the next day and then he tripled down on it and they've been raising a bunch of money off of it. Uh, and so it's just, I don't even care your, your party affiliation. This is the kind of stuff that is, has moved beyond political theatrics into uh, a, a scary dark place of division and hatred, in my opinion. At the same time, I will also add that the head of the, of OK2A, which is the Second Amendment Association. That guy also issued a statement that got less press because it happened a few minutes after, I think, the first thing. And his statement on Facebook uh, basically equated vaccines or vaccine mandates to rape, uh, which is also an incorrect and despicable comparison. And uh, it has been interesting, I think, to see... I've seen a lot of Republicans, notable Republicans... Um, uh, currently elected officials, former elected officials, uh, big time consultants, all, you know, at some point say, oh, okay, we got to, this is too far. We got to speak out against this. Like I, you know, I, I disavow this. This is not, this is not who we are, but the dude still has a job, right? Like I know it's up to whatever committee of the, of the party, but the fact is if enough people were that angry, Bennett would be out of a job and he's not, he's, he's issued two uh, double and triple downs on this deal. And he's going to continue doing it. I think as long as he can raise money and feel like he gets some support from it. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, that alone is demoralizing in the face of everything else. Yeah. I have a lot of things that I would say about it, except I, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure, uh, chairman Bennett is uh, not a regular listener to the show. Um, but that notwithstanding, um, it's a comment that deserves condemnation and nothing more. Like um, it doesn't, it doesn't even deserve further. Yeah. So uh, he can uh, go do something. <laughs> I think I'm reading between the lines here. Scott. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Scott, um, th- speaking of things getting worse, COVID gets worse. Uh, 2,200 cases again today. Golly, Florida is getting hammered. They had 22,000 cases, the highest ever. Um, Unbelievable. Obviously, they have a lot more people. Um, We are still in the top 10 for, I think, per capita number of cases. uh, And that is not good, folks. Not good news. Hospitalizations are way up. And, you know, I'm sure like many of our listeners continue to see stories from people my age, right? 30s and 40s that are in the hospital, in the ICU. There's a story today in Tulsa about a, a, a woman who was pregnant and had to have a, a C-section so they could get the baby out. And the mom is in ICU now with COVID. It was just incredibly tragic situations. And I think it hits differently, right? Than it did last year. Also tragic um, in many ways. But I think when there is this, we saw lots of comments about like, well, it's just older folks. And that's a whole different commentary on our world. Um, and, you know, as I've mentioned on here, right, my mom was um, in her 60s and she died from it. That still sucks. Um, but to see younger people, you start seeing the fear in our peers' eyes, uh, especially when it's, you know, 95% of the folks in the hospital are those that were unvaccinated. And there's a clear way to prevent this and to save it. And as we near the start of school, what's going to happen with our kids? So we'll get back to the kids stuff in just a minute. But uh, Scott, you as a frontline healthcare worker have been dealing with this in a little bit different way. 
and you always have good updates. So I'll I'll uh, hand the mic to you. Yeah, man, uh, the situation is not good. It's not good. Our uh, our seven day average of cases we're now up to nineteen hundred, nineteen hundred and seven as of today. You mentioned that's plus two thousand three hundred and three new cases. Um, we've got just under a thousand people in the ICU, nine hundred and sixty five people, or excuse me, nine hundred and sixty five people in the hospital. Um, two hundred and seventy nine of those are in the ICU. Um, so that that's almost thirty percent of admissions um, that are in the ICU. That is that is a higher rate of ICU admissions than we were seeing previously. So not only um, is this strain of the virus making young people sick, it is making them sicker um, than what than what we had seen uh, previously. Um, you know, in terms of vaccines, I, I guess that that maybe one. Um, you know, one silver lining is I, I spend a good chunk of my day every day trying to convince people to get the vaccine. Um, I s- started out and had probably a 50-50 success rate. Then it went up to, you know, maybe 60, 65, 70. I'm, it's, it's, I think this week I only had one person who wasn't vaccinated that I wasn't able to convince. Um, I've also gotten a little bit more, uh, how should we say, um, I'm I'm a little more direct when I'm trying to talk to people. Um, I had a, a patient today that has a she's a little bit older. She has a number of comorbidities that would make her uh, very very uh, ill if she got COVID. Uh, and she said, "Well, I mean, I, I just don't know about side effects from the vaccine. I mean, I don't I don't know." And I said, "Well, I can just tell you if you you might have some side effects from the vaccine, but um, if you got COVID, I think there's a there's a decent chance you would die." And she was just like. I mean, what do you really think so? I said, yeah, yeah, sis, I really think so. Um, so she's gotten a vaccine appointment on Monday. Um, you know, it's, but it's just, it's just a little, it's just a little mind blowing to me um, because it does show that a lot of the, a lot of the resistance, you know, it hasn't, I mean, there are people that are just absolutely like, no, I will not get it. But, but now that we're in the middle of another surge, there's there's a lot of folks that are like, yeah, okay, you're right. I guess I better. And I tell all of them that they should, but my hope, you know, for, for some of them, it might be too late. doesn't mean that they're going to die, but they may still get sick. You know, it takes, uh, it takes the better part of five or six weeks for full vaccine efficacy. And this thing is blown up so fast. I don't know where we're going to be in five or six weeks from now, right? The healthcare system is already strained. You know, you mentioned Florida. Um, there are oxygen shortages, um, in, in Florida, they're running into oxygen shortages like we hadn't seen, um, since earlier days of the pandemic. Interestingly, and this relates to Oklahoma, one of the reasons that they have oxygen shortages is because there are bottlenecks in the supply chain. The reason that there are bottlenecks in the, in the supply chain is because of rules and regulations that over the transport of medical gases, et cetera. If, if Governor DeSantis of Florida would declare an emergency declaration for COVID, many of those rules and regulations could be uh, temporarily dispensed with, and that would free up the delivery of oxygen. However, the governor has said he's not going to do that. Um, similarly, here in Oklahoma, you know, um, in terms of in terms of schools trying to protect kids by by mandating masks, um, and and <laughs> you know, we've talked at length on this show about. Um, the the what is it senator Kerr was sb865 is that the bill um that that uh that that said 658 i the right number is wrong order um <laughs> um that that has said that schools can't mandate masks do you know how many parents i have that have no idea that's the case and then they're stunned when i tell them they're like they said, well, the school says they're not requiring masks, but they really want them to. And I said, well, just so you know, the reason the school says they're not requiring it is because they're not allowed to. And they're like parents. I've had parents jaws just hit the floor when they hear that this is a law. Um, but as we've also talked about, part of hospital surge capacity planning, you know, expanding ICU capacity, um, hiring staff depends on whether we're operating under a public health emergency. And the governor has made very clear that, um, in my opinion, for political reasons, he is not going to declare a public health emergency. Um, he's just he's not going to do it because he wa- he wants to say he wants to have the ability to say that he didn't. Um, well, and it, um, this is the epitome of uh, of cut off your nose to spite your face, right? Like, yeah. if his concern is mask mandates, oh, that's like one tiny piece of a very large, complicated, integrated issue here 
th- that will have far-reaching consequences for for dozens, hundreds, thousands of patients. Yeah. So, you know, the situation is is not good. If you look at data from Arkansas um, and Missouri and, and you look at kind of time lapse of what's happened in those states and what's Oklahoma, I mean, you can just see this wave kind of marching marching west. And, you know, there are probably a couple of weeks of where, ahead of where we are. Hospitals in Arkansas are transferring patients to Milwaukee um, because there's nowhere closer that has open beds. Milwaukee, um, Wisconsin. Yeah. That's yeah. not that's not a neighboring state. That's a long ass way away. Yeah, because because hospitals are full and they're not just full with COVID, right? Like our local hospitals are full because we, we already are operating at a census that is higher than usual for this time of year for a number of reasons. Um, and Andy, you and I were talking earlier this week. One thing that people don't understand is particularly when you talk about um, an intensive care unit, COVID patients that get in it, that enter the ICU sit there for a long, long time. An average COVID ICU stay might be 21, 28 days, whereas a typical ICU stay is only two to three days. So the reason that this is is so devastating for the healthcare system is because you don't have that rapid that rapid turnover. So it's not just that there are, you know, 30% of ICU beds maybe that have COVID patients in them, right? It's that 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 those bed days are are gone, right? right. Like it takes so many resources to take care of those patients for such a long time that you it's it's harder to do surgeries right like because you don't have you don't have available bed days for someone to be you know in icu for 3 days after a heart surgery um yeah it, i mean it's it's a, it's a system that is built for for short term stay but because of this of this pandemic folks are staying for a long term i'd like to think of it as when you walk into the a store, or let's say you walk into the mall, right? And there's two sets of doors. There's the outer set of doors and the inner set of doors. The ICU is often like that in-between space, right? Like between the event, surgery, trauma, something, and uh, longer-term hospital stay. And so they're in this like space there for a short time. But what we have is that space is filled up, right? And you can't just add in more of that interim space on a whim it takes a, a a lot of changes it does and you can you can make some of those changes quicker than others if you don't have to do all of the normal things that you do when you're building a new icu wing um and that's why things like you know that's why uh states of emergency are important when they're necessary is because they allow um they allow you to be a little bit more nimble than you might be able to be otherwise. So, you know, all that to say, um, I, one point of hope, and I want to emphasize that this is like speculative, but it's kind of where I'm putting some of my hope right now in other places in the world where we have seen, um, waves and, and spikes in COVID cases that are due to the Delta variant. Those waves have been much more short lived than what most models have predicted, this variant of the disease is so infectious. Um, it appears that it moves through the population very, very rapidly. Um, and then when you consider that our test positivity in Oklahoma today is 25% highest in the country, top 10, top 10 state, um, turnaround, top 10 turnaround. Um, when you consider we have the highest test uh, positivity in the country, you know, maybe we're underestimating our true new cases every day by three times, four times, five times. So there may actually be a lot more of this disease out there than we, than we know of. Um, And what that could mean is that in a few weeks, we have actually kind of gone past the worst of it. Um, There were models in the UK that were predicting they would hit 200, 250,000 new cases a day. Um, At the time, I think they were sitting at 50 or 60,000 new cases a day. And and rather than than hitting that new peak, um, they actually started dropping really rapidly within a few days of that projection. And the thought is between immunizations and people who have previously been infected, the the pool of people the virus can get to is limited. Um, and so and and because of the, of the limited patient pool and because of uh, the infectivity of the virus, this this strain, it actually kind of moves through much more quickly i don't know if that will bear out here or not well and it's the thing about the uk right is they're 
vaccination rate was around 70% or like 72. So they had a lot more folks yeah. that were vaccinated going into yeah. it. So there was yeah. a lot less um, potential, right? A lot less COVID eligible people, we'll say, yeah. uh, than we have here in Oklahoma, where we have a vaccine rate right around 50%. Yeah. So we'll, we will see what happens. Um, I think the one thing I think we can feel confident in is that it is going to get worse before it gets better. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Well, on, um, on that note, we um, feel great about that. We do. I feel just <laughs> warm and uh, itchy. Really, is what it is. Um, so, as uh, as someone with children, I'm uh, relatively terrified about what's going to happen over the next month or two. Um, as school starts, my kids, like most, start back next week. Um, my daughter, uh, Margot, who's 18 months, started back to daycare this week, and uh, we're just honestly, a ball of nerves, right? Like (laughs) about what's going to happen. And uh, so we're going to bring our guest, Senator Kurt, um, into the conversation here. Senator Kurt, you guys, uh, excuse me, not just you guys, but the, uh, the legislative Democrats, I think everybody, but I didn't, I didn't check all the names, not everybody. Um, The, some of the Democrats at the state legislature sent a letter to Governor Stitt this week to address that, um, issue that Scott was talking about just a moment ago, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? And I know you're a, you're a parent of, of school children as well, and tell us how you're feeling about things. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the House Democrats did a press conference and an appeal to the governor last week to, to push him to try to get him to declare a state of emergency. And um, some of my caucus this week sent a letter to the governor to try to reinforce that. You know, the, the heartbreaking thing um you know, very clearly over the course of COVID, of being a state legislator, we really got a sense of um, that we don't run the day to day. We don't run the executive branch. So we're very clear that we can't run those things. But unfortunately, that's, you know, Senate Bill 658 was rushed through on the last day of session. It was actually a floor substitute at the last minute. And what that means is brand new language um, that no one else had gotten a look at. So, um, I'm still find myself frustrated about that because I have to reread it. I never got to really study it in advance and people really didn't get to advocate. They didn't know it was coming. You know, I heard from quite a few educators the morning of the vote, but people didn't have a chance to really look at it and know um, how much it was going to limit us. In fact, the governor's declaration being required was something I didn't notice until someone brought it to my attention later. Um, So it's very disheartening um, that that bill was passed without any real consideration of the policy. Um, it passed almost completely on party lines. I think there was one Republican in the House that voted for it. I mean, against it. Ever, otherwise, it was completely on party lines. So that's a vast majority of the legislature that voted for it. And it's just irresponsible. I mean, I, you know, when it came through, I just was shocked that we would want to limit the tools available to our schools. Um, we count on our schools to create a safe environment. We count on our schools to make decisions to keep kids safe. Everything from you know, playground equipment to counselors, to nurses. Um, We have high expectations for them. I think they even have liability uh, for caring for kids. And then uh, for us to to take away what is a known tool that would help kids, just shocking. And um, so, I mean, all we can do is ask the governor for that declaration. The other option would be a special session, but that would mean all my, um, the majority of my colleagues who voted for the bill changing their mind and admitting they're wrong. And that's a pretty big order. Um, It would take a whole lot more people contacting us. And I got to say, I've been disappointed. And I know people are just tired and numb and and just disillusioned. But I've heard from so many people um, who are uh, anti-vaccine and anti-mask. And really, even in my district, haven't heard from that many people. And, you know, they may just know that I agree with them and that we should have the option of masking our children. Um, and mandating masks, but I haven't heard from that many people. So I would say that it's been rallied. A very small number of people are rallying very hard um, to push this agenda, um, which is disappointing. Um, This week was really heartbreaking. Yesterday, I went to my daughter's fifth grade orientation. She goes to Oklahoma City Public Schools and had an assembly. um, And we had been warned ahead of time, you know, encouraged to wear masks. We're not we're not allowed to make you, but we really hope you will. Um, and I was so pleased when I got there. Um, the parents were in masks. The kids were in masks. We're probably, you know, 300 people in a gym, which could be horrifying. But all, there were probably only one or two people without masks. Um, we were socially distanced. And 
the principals start talking and, you know, they're having to dance around. Our educators can't be direct with families and with kids um, about what's needed because they're afraid of, of getting in trouble, which is just not all right. I mean, we would never do that on other things that involve kids' safety. So our principal stood up and said, look, and he was talking to the kids. He said, look, I'm going to wear this mask as long until you're able to get vaccinated. Because all these fifth graders, they're 10, they're 11 years old. They haven't been able to. They're not allowed to get vaccinated yet. Um, and I just started crying. Like, why did it come to this? Like, why should the, our kids be facing this? Why should our educators be facing this? It's just heartbreaking. And I know, I don't know how other families did, but, you know, my kids do not function well in a virtual environment. It was, it was a very hard year for them. They don't learn well in that environment. Um, wasn't good for me trying to do my other gig, um, trying to be a senator at the same time. So I just say uh, I'm really disappointed that we would that we would limit what's possible for kids. And I can't believe we're going to let this go forward. I really can't believe we're going to enter school next week and allow kids to potentially come to school and infect others. My daughter's just mad about it. She's 10. She's mad that she can't get vaccinated yet. The rest of us are. She said, I have been so careful all year, mommy. I've been so careful. I've worn my mask everywhere. I stayed home. I've, you know, done what I was supposed to do and I could still get sick. And I was like, yep, this, this is not fair. It's, I mean, it's not. And it's just, you know, it's absolutely tragic to, to hear you say that, you know, to hear from, from um, a 10 year old, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just hard to even know how to respond to that. Like, I think, you know, I don't think it's shocking to hear a 10 year old say that something isn't fair. Um, but to have, for it to be, to be something like this, right? Like I'm, I'm at 10, I'm going to have to put myself at risk again. Um, after having trying to be so careful because there are so many adults in my community that aren't taking this seriously. I mean, that's just, that's mind blowing. That's mind blowing to hear, you know, um, we can talk ad nauseum about how terrible of a policy this is and why it's, you know, dangerous, not only for kids, but dangerous for everybody in the community. This is, this is a political show. We do talk, we do talk politics. So I want to get into the politics of it just, just a little bit. Do you have any sense? You said this was a floor sub. Is this a bill you know, was the majority taken aback by this? Was leadership taken aback by it at all? Was this, what, do you have the sense, was this something that, that kind of everybody who needed to know about it knew about it and uh, they, they, they threw it on everybody at, at the end of session? You know, or- I, I'm not sure the full story there because clearly I couldn't, I wasn't in the room on that, but I know that some of my Republican colleagues were surprised by it, did not read it ahead of time. Um, you know, I think there was a compromise, um, but unfortunately, with the supermajority environment, the compromise is between the far, far right and the far right. It's you know, it's not a compromise that considers moderate positions or you know, far left positions or left positions. So, um, I do think it got rushed. Um, I don't know why we would trust a floor sub, and especially the author who who presented it, Senator Sandridge, consistently won't answer questions. Um, literally, will tell us, "I'll get, I'll get back to you." Um, and when you're on the floor voting on something, that's too late. You know, something should have already been vetted and considered. Um, so I think it was kind of rushed. But, you know, the floor leader and the pro tem have control over what is heard on the floor. Um, they wouldn't have heard that unless they thought that their members really wanted it. Um, and it was a choice they made. And 100 percent of the Republicans voted for it in the Senate. Um, I think that's a pretty telling uh, statistic. And I, I it broke my heart because. Some of my colleagues who follow science, who are um, attuned to public health, still supported it. And I don't know why. I think it was straight partisan uh, politics. And, you know, it's that OK2A and some of those other groups that have gotten pretty strong voices at the Capitol who are very loud advocates. And you, when you look at some of the numbers that we see in polling, et cetera, it's representing a pretty extreme view. But they're so vocal and there's a lot of fear of being primaried. Uh, for my Republican colleagues, um, insurrectionists. You know, we had uh, four incumbents knocked off in the last election cycle on the Republican side, uh, and they were knocked off by people who were farther to the right. So there's a real fear there. Um, but is that fear? <laughs> Should that supersede 
the safety of children? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I don't think we'd make that decision in a lot of other environments. A hundred percent. Without, um, I mean, now to be clear, you, you can break whatever news you want to on this show. You're always welcome to. But um, without without recounting or divulging any private conversations, again, unless you want to, do you have any sense that is there any regret from from some of the Republicans? I mean, have you talked to anybody who has voted for this thing and said, "Oh shit, man! If I if I had known that this is where that this is what it would do to us." Um, I wouldn't have voted for it. Yeah. I think some of my colleagues are getting reamed by, especially by their educators and by their education community. Um, and I, and, and they should be, I mean, I think if you're a constituent listening and you haven't talked to your legislator about this issue, now is a good time to do it and don't assume what they think. You know, I, I think sometimes I want to post the voting records because I think a lot of times people think their own legislators voting the way they'd want them to, but they should probably double check that. Um, but I want to hear from people, too, because it helps when I can say I'm being inundated with messages about this. This is not OK. And be able to tell stories about it. But, yeah, I've heard from a couple of colleagues who and I haven't gotten to run into that many people this summer, but who are having regrets, mostly about the local control issue, you know, that they that they took away local control. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what you hear from the GOP a lot. Right. Is that the government closer to the people governs best. Um uh, Carly Atchison, who is uh, communications uh, part of uh, Governor Stitt's uh, comms team, she was on uh, she was on the Twitter uh, this week trying to make the case that this isn't subverting local control because it's giving all of the decision making power to uh, parents, which I guess is the closest form of government to a child. I, I think is what she was trying to say. Except um, it doesn't. Well, I mean, right? it's just like. Unless right. you live off the grid, parent. you know, like if you live off the grid, that's fair. If you live by yourself and you homeschool, that's fair. But, you know, I mean, I don't know about others, but I spent a lot of time this year thinking about what is a society? What is a community? You know, a lot of people have opted out of public schools. Okay. You've chosen to opt out. But does that mean you should define um, what happens in those public schools? I've had a lot of the people who are anti-vaccination are also people who are not choosing to send their kids to public schools. And yet they're trying to dictate what happens in our chosen uh, forum for society, which I want my kids to be with a diversity of children learning together. Um, and so to me, we have to agree on some common uh, risk control. Uh, I, I mean, just fundamentally, what is a society? Do we live all by ourselves? To me, freedom is in society and community. Freedom is not hunkering down by myself with my family. Um, that makes me incredibly uneasy. That is not my view of the world and of society and of human nature, which humans are wired to connect with others, you know? Yeah. I, I had a, I had a call earlier today with a 14 year old um, in California. I think he had reached out to me for my, uh, my other job at the national association of nonpartisan reformers um, and sent a really long email that was like about bipartisanship and, and democracy reform and just kind of giving his thoughts based on, and he was like very humble of like, listen, I'm a kid and like, I've just done some reading and, you know, and I'm interested in some stuff. And he's like, here's where I think, but he's like, I'd love to, he's like, is there a group or something I could talk to? And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll set up a zoom with you. Right. Like ask your parents or whatever. And so we finally got to connect today and, it was like a, a lecture. I was like, do you have questions? And he's like, no, just tell me about things. And I was like, I wish every kid was like you. Right. Um, and he pointed out, Scott, to your point about, he said, well, from what I've read, it sounds like the Republican party used to be known as the party of small government, but lately it seems like they're, they're really trying to control how government works and, and be it, have it be more involved in people's lives. And I just kind of chuckled and I was like, where did you? And he's like, well, that's just from like reading history books. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let's. Yeah, the, you're, uh, not, the, you're not wrong, but <laughs> the innocence right. of a child, right? Right. <laughs> right. Well, and there's yeah, you know, if you follow Bill Crystal or some of those folks, there's a lot of a lot of good organizations, Take Back Our Republic and Stand Up Republic, that are uh, of conservatives and Republicans that are shaking their head at the current state of affairs in our country as well and wondering what happened, right? Like this is this is not the party of. Uh, of Reagan, this is not the party of 20 or 30 years ago. 
um, things are very different now. Yeah, I mean, the whole discussion about um, uh, there's, you know, some movement to try to push to not allow businesses to require their employees to be vaccinated. And um, that discussion is very strange, topsy-turvy kind of world. And, you know, one of my responses to constituents who've reached out to me about that, who don't want employers and businesses to be able to mandate things is that, you know, Oklahoma overwhelmingly passed right to work. And as long as we're a right to work state, I mean, the, the, that control is very much in the employer's hand. Um, you know, that's not where I am in terms of what I agree with, but I do think we give employers a lot of responsibility for the safety of their workplaces and we make them pay for a whole lot of insurance because um, they're liable for a lot of things. They have liability for a lot of things. So yeah. um, we have an environment where employers are responsible, so they do get some control. Yeah. You know, it, it does make me wonder how much, well, let me, how different our world would be if we spent, well, honestly, less time on Twitter and more time actually engaging with our neighbors, right? Or with our peers, our colleagues um, about these issues, right? And so it's, it is easy to get online and issue your hot take to the world, right? Like, this is my anger. And I'll be honest, I, uh, had a, a three tweet thread this morning about schools and what we should be doing. And I tried not to like get on a soapbox too much. I was just like, listen, I've heard a lot about what people don't want to do. I have heard very little about plans or even suggestions for how to keep kids safe. And I just think everybody, parents, uh, voters of all ages, you know, we should all be asking our elected officials our appointed officials, anyone in leadership, what are you doing to protect our children? Okay, I, I hear that you don't, you're worried about mask mandates, you don't worry about vaccine mandates, uh, never mind the fact that we already require vaccination records to enroll in school in the first place. This is not a new thing. But if you don't want those things, okay, we'll just put that aside. What are you doing to protect kids, right? Like, what is the plan? What are you going to do when hundreds of kids are positive next week, right? Scott and I were texting this week and I was like, listen, uh, let's do some math. Let how many, how many kids statewide do you think have COVID right now? That are not not those have been diagnosed, but those who actually have it, right? There's a, a portion of those have been diagnosed and a lot more that have it. Let's say, I don't know, just to estimate, there are a hundred children ages uh, five to twelve. In the whole state. I'm sure it's more than that, but let's just say for the sake of easy math, there's a, only a hundred kids and then they all go to school next week. And based on what we know from a year of a ton of science, right? <laughs> studying this virus the, that spread um, for Delta variant is like six to eight people uh, for exposure. So these hundred kids go sit in a classroom for eight hours a day with all their classmates and after a few days, right, um, let's say after two days, almost certainly six to eight of their students, their friends, are now infected. Well, not all those kids are going to get diagnosed or be or be um, symptomatic necessarily. And then in two more days, you're going to have each of those. So we've gone from 100 to, let's say, 700. And now each of those 700 kids is going to infect six to eight more kids. And so suddenly we're at, you know, uh, 3,000, right? Like it just starts like going up. Um, and now I'm keeping my child home. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and, I mean, and then the other issue, which is what happens with the parents and, you know, like in our household, my, my husband's, um, you know, he, he's a dentist. So he's very concerned about getting anyone sick. Um, and we've had to take great care, of course, because he feels very responsible for that. And so. You know, if my kid gets exposed, my husband's not going to have his office open because he doesn't want to risk exposing someone. So, I mean, the ripple down effect, I mean, you know, we can talk to, I mean, human, hu huge human costs and health costs, but also economic costs are our, our uh, legislative office of fiscal transparency, which is a uh, um, legislative run investigative arm, which, you know, there's many things that I don't always agree with about that entity, but they do some good research as well. They estimated each COVID case costs the state, state economy. It's like over $100,000 per case, even if they 
don't go into the hospital because of lost productivity and that and quarantining, et cetera. So, I mean, even if you don't care about the human suffering, you you know that it's costing our economy. And, and anyone who thinks shutdowns are the only reason the economy suffered last year, they really missed uh, the bigger picture of what was going on with our economy. That's right. Well, well Senator, I've got I've got some good news for you. Uh, we uh, we passed tax relief for Oklahomans this year, so I feel pretty confident that the uh, the extra like thirty bucks that the average Oklahoman will have in their pocket because of tax relief, I think that should be more than enough to overcome any economic uh, economic impact from from the pandemic. I don't know. That's just that's that's my take. <laughs> You're hurting me. <laughs> that was. You know, that's that sigh was just perfect. Okay, I do. I, mean, I do want to say, are you Andy? Are you going in a different direction? Because I want to talk about money for a second. Um, no, I was going to talk about money too. Actually, I was just going to say to to put my analogy with your hard numbers, right? But that's the thing, right? That within a week we will have, if if we assume only a hundred students in the entire state have COVID, that within a week we will be at twenty thousand, right? Like it's it is almost a mathematical certainty. And that means all of those parents have to stay home. We have that many classrooms shut down, which means all these other students or parents have to sit shut down or stay home from work. And yes, all of a sudden uh, the state's GDP just gets hit in the knees. Right. And it really um, is a big hindrance to, to the growth and the recovery of our state. That's what I was going to say, but please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's important. And I think, Yeah. I, I did talk to the Disability Law Center, and they've been talking to a lot of clients about challenges around, you know, equitable education for individuals with disabilities. And they did um, send me a citation that um, with the CDC's mandate for uh, masking on public transportation, that does include school buses, FYI. Um, they've been making sure that school districts know that um, at, at the very least school buses, um, the, Fed, the feds override local um, but I did want to talk about the tax cuts for a minute because there's something that's been eating me all summer and I've been working on the numbers on it. Um, there's been a lot of uh, during the summer. What happens is the legislature goes around and the majority party gets to talk about all their great successes from the session. And I know this is what happens, but I got to say, it's just very hard because what I see are the missed opportunities and the challenges. So um, the majority was very proud of themselves for increasing education in the largest budget increase um, they claim ever. Um, I will point out that we have the largest student body count that we've ever had. Um, but the thing is, when the Board of Equalization came out with their projections for the upcoming year, the tax cuts are actually going to eat away almost two thirds of the gains that they made in budget increases. So the tax cuts will take money directly out of a portion dollar. So those are the dollars that are designated before the legislature even sees them. So those are 1017 funds that go to education and others, roads, funds, et cetera. I didn't even look at what's going to be cut to our roads, our beloved roads, um, but definitely education. So the Board of Equalization projected something like a $140 million cut from last year in terms of what's going to come into the 1017 fund. Um, so those increases don't mean much if we start um, backtracking tax cuts out of it. So, yes, one hundred percent preach. <laughs> we are all on the we are all on the same page. Um, so tell me this, and again, uh, you know, this we 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 try to get into policy here, but sometimes politics um, is is as important too. Um, two questions. So one, and I'm going to, I'm going to dovetail on what you just talked about with, with having to potentially, you know, claw back or, or decrease some of the education funding next year based on the number that, that you got from the board of equalization, but also circle back to COVID a little bit. Um, we, Andy and I, a few weeks ago, when we thought that the worst of the pandemic was behind us, we were trying to surmise what we think the political impact of COVID will be in in the future. Um, I assume that the governor is not going to declare a, uh, a a public health emergency. Um, everything that I have heard uh, is that he's basically not open. He's not entertaining that possibility at all. Um so do you think that do you think that he will take he's running for election next year 2022 um, do you think Governor Stitt will take any political 
hit for his handling of the p- pandemic. And then related to that, um, how do you think, assuming that, you know, there, that there are some economic impacts from this next surge of COVID, assuming that next year, uh, we don't have the budget that we had this year because we're not going to get this massive influx of federal spending in terms of CARES Act funding, et cetera. Um, it, you know, do you think that he will have any, is he going to be able to run on the economic record that I think he is planning on running on in 2022, particularly if the legislature has just come out of a session where you guys are having to cut services uh, because of tax cuts that were passed this year, if that makes any sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I wouldn't claim to have any real understanding of the statewide electorate. I really have not been a student of um, statewide races, and I, I really don't understand um, the way they function. Um, I I know the messaging that has been very consistent, and a lot of it is around um, open for business, which is actually the same um, tagline we used in the 1940s when we first established a Department of Commerce type um, uh, agency. Um, I think that'll keep going. I don't know how he can claim to be about change now. I'm not really sure how that can go. Um, perhaps because he's had some some leaders that he some cabinet leaders that have have done things that are quick wins he might be able to make some claims um but i don't really know and i don't know what it'll take uh for there to be a political hit you know i would have thought by now that um certainly the medical community would not support the governor um given how little he's listened to their advice and um expertise um, I, I think everyone who faced unemployment last year um, certainly should be frustrated. I don't know, you know, how many are voters. Um, so I guess I, I really I'm, I'm clueless. You know, the, the polling that they're doing and sharing tends to still show a lot of popularity. I'm not sure who they're talking to or if that's that's most of the folks who are going to be voting next year. So I'm, I'm I'm a little clueless. I'm real focused in my little uh, neck of the woods of who I'm representing. And I get to go have face-to-face conversations. I was thinking about that when Andy brought up, you know, how maybe talking more and not being on social media so much. It really is. There's nothing in the world like knocking on doors and talking to people. Um, I knocked on um, 20,000 doors myself last campaign. Um, so I ended up talking to five, 6,000 people, you know, many of them multiple times. And you just you don't follow a playbook and it really is meaningful to talk to people outside of, if you can get past the initial storylines, like the first conversation is usually about national storylines, about partisanship, national storylines about politics. And if we can connect on a more human level, we can usually talk about some meaningful things. And it was amazing to learn people's um, combination of values and how that plays into what they think they need from their politicians. Um, And, um, their outlook on politics, um, hearing that in person was incredibly meaningful. So I'll be back out there this fall and many of my colleagues will be. Um, and I, to, that helps kind of buffer me against the weird echo chamber of the state capitol, where you're only really hearing from insiders and lobbyists and, you know, real motivated advocates. So it's very good to be out there. People are not paying attention to the minutiae. They don't know. Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of people don't follow the day to day or the procedural anything so um it'll be very interesting being an incumbent yeah you should well, tell it, all those people that they need to listen to our show they can listen sure. once a week and they, can listen, they, can, they can listen once a week and then they can know about the day-to-day minutia right, the, right. they can we'll, we'll keep them informed it's like so, medicine. You know, i have a question about knocking, right i uh so when you i have never knocked doors as a candidate only on behalf of candidates um when when I knock doors, I often not always, but I often get asked the question initially first, like, "Well, here I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I'm here to talk to you about so and so who's running for whatever." And one of the first questions, "Well, now what? Now what party are they?" When you're knocking doors, is that the first question you get as well? Sometimes, I mean, I was talking to a lot of moderate people, and so I wouldn't say it was the very first question for a lot of people. Um, but the people who ask it usually are more zealous one way or the other. Um, and so I never would know how that was going to go. You really couldn't predict if somebody was a real determined uh, Republican or real determined Democrat where they would land. Um, 
I only had a few doors slammed in my face. And I think that's just because my I'm very aware that my political consultants target who I'm visiting. So I'm not going to visit folks that are, you know, vote in 100 percent of the Republican primaries. So I'm not going to very rarely. I only had a few times when people tried to litmus test me about my support of the previous president. So um, occasionally they ask party first, but usually not. In fact, I had some people, I think, that were a little surprised when I wasn't on their ballot, their primary ballot, and they were Republicans. Yeah. Well, and this um, is probably a good kind of segue. Senator, I I sent you a document last night, I think. Um, And listeners, I will link this in the show notes of this episode. Uh, But it's called uh, The Fault Lines of America. It is a uh, relatively new report put out by um, a, a guy named Justin Guest at George Mason University in conjunction with Time Magazine and Ipsos, who's a well-known um, polling group and research. And they they conducted a pretty significantly uh, significant survey of the American electorate of voters, I think, from all 50 states. It was a, a nationwide representative sample. Um, and they it was about identity and and who we identify with and who we don't um as as people and the results indicated that the they looked at i think five domains so it was like party affiliation um race or ethnicity um uh religion education level and nativity, um, like where you are from, basically, um, and basically, like, were you born in America or are you an immigrant? Those were the dividing line. And the results indicated that for Republicans, the most unifying or the thing that made someone most closely identify with um, another person is their um, religion, right? Uh, which I guess was expected. Um, and then for Democrats, it was party affiliation, right? Now, for Republicans, party affiliation was second. It was very close. Um, and so I was on a Zoom yesterday with with the author there, and he was kind of presenting the results. And it was really fascinating and uh, humbling, I guess, uh, to hear him kind of talk about how sorted we are as a as a nation right and and there was some pushback i think from the audience saying hey like well first of all can we quit researching only what divides us and let's talk about what unifies us and he was and he correctly said this survey is about what unifies us um but in doing that it also highlights what is not unifying or what makes us feel the most different from somebody else and i you know so i can imagine even more so now than even two years ago when you, when you ran uh, that knocking on doors and people asking party affiliation is like that initial litmus test of where do I start from in this conversation? Do I start agreeing with them or do I start from a point of disagreement um, or defensiveness perhaps? But I would, I would uh, think, and this is somewhat based on, you know, being a therapist for most of my life, that the the bigger issue here is is not so much what divides us or what unifies us, but it's whether or not we're willing to talk to each other. And this, I think this goes back to what I said earlier. I would love, and I had hoped to do this this fall, had COVID, um, you know, continued to decrease, but I would love to assemble an army of volunteers that go knock doors, not for a candidate, not even to tell tell voters about something, but to listen, just to go out and say, you know, hey, we're here with Let's Fix This. We really don't know what matters most to you, right? Like, do you ever even think about politics? Because <laughs> most folks don't, right? Most folks are not us who live and breathe this stuff all the time. Most people are just trying to live their life. And I would love to somehow collect information from Oklahomans across the state about what actually matters to them and what are the issues that they really care about versus what are the ones that fill the headlines. Because I'm... I'm not sure they're the same. And we do know from like that poll that uh, Pat McFerrin put out this week, the results that showed that most Oklahomans, right, uh, believe that vaccines are safe and effective. Most of them want the government just to stay out of it and let businesses be businesses and let people be people. Um, And it was in some ways 
Well, I, I do want to, before you move forward, yeah, yeah. that data always needs to be presented as voters only. And that's a really specific section of our community. So, you know, that's who's getting polled again and again as voters. And so there's, you know, in our state, that only means what? 35, 40% of people who participate. Um, so I just want to put that out there because when I was out listening to people, I tried to be really aware who I was not hearing from. Um, you know, I mean, I went to all kinds of homes, but they were registered voters. Um, and so there's a lot of people I wasn't hearing from. And it's, it's the folks, those are probably the folks that most need to be heard, but are most disaffected or disinterested. That's right. And as an elected official, you represent all of them regardless of if. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think that's something a lot of, a lot of, a lot of elected folks um, on both sides of the aisle can, can start to forget is your constituents don't just include the people who voted for you, right? Like they're, they're everybody in whatever, you know, whatever district it is, whether you're a County commissioner or a state Senator or the president of the United States or a governor or whatever, you you work for everybody um <clears throat> the people that voted for you the people that voted against you but as you point out um astutely the people that didn't vote at all um they're included too and they're oftentimes the majority um so i think yeah thank you for making sure that we are explicit um about that well that's what i wondered with the data on the partisanship um you know i didn't dig deeply into the to the cross tabs on that but you know how much how many of the people did not identify across party lines and what i found in terms of the people i was talking to that wasn't how they viewed themselves on the you know the moderate people i talked to on the doors that's not their first way of identifying themselves um and so be pretty interesting to know if it's just okay those who are that 20 25 of people who are very partisan are so partisan that they skew all the numbers or are, you know, or like it is, which is that, you know, the more moderate people don't show up for, for primaries because that's not where they care. Or I don't hear from a lot of the moderate people at the, at the Capitol because they're not the ones who are motivated to call. The people who are motivated to call are, are more extreme in their views. And um, anyway, I think that's hard and it's very hard. I talked to friends who were, you know, things that they think are very common sense. They're just in shock at some of the policies we pass. And I think especially around gun policies, they're just in shock. And I just say, look, you know, we don't, they are hearing from the zealots on this issue. They are not hearing from moderate people because you wouldn't think you need to ask to not have, you know, unlicensed um, concealed carry guns everywhere. You know, you if somebody's kind of moderate or doesn't isn't all that worried about it, they wouldn't think that. Um, so it's a it's a real challenge in terms of communication. But Andy, back to your point about listening to people who don't get listened to, and one thing I really miss at the state level that I loved in municipal politics is the planning department. And in no way am I saying they're perfect, but that whole function, municipal planners go out and proactively listen and get information and make plans that may never come to fruition, but create opportunities around the community needs. So like I'm seeing the real need, right? I'm on the American Rescue Plan Act committee for the legislature where we're supposed to be prioritizing this 1.9 billion coming directly to the state. You know, we don't already have a plan that says here are the ways we need it. I mean, each agency has a plan, but there's not a statewide plan. And I know that's hard and very challenging and nothing is perfect in that. But I think that kind of um, with our political leadership, everything's real short term, whereas something like a planning division in the municipalities, they create 10, 20, 30 year projections about dem demographics and neighborhoods and, you know, uh, those kinds of needs. And I'm really missing that function at the state level. That reminds me that I have some work to do about our neighborhood bike walk plan for our neighborhood um, that I've, I've neglected for a few months while we all try to survive a pandemic. Well, uh, Senator Kurt, it has been wonderful as always to have you on the show. Please come back again. Uh, but uh, Glad to. Thank you for your work. Thank you for being here. Scott, good to see you, buddy. Thanks for being here. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss it except on the times when I have to miss it. That's right. Well... I mean, that's all we can ask, right? <laughs> Listeners, thank you for being here as well. I um, hope this was helpful. And, you know, maybe in the spirit of this conversation, uh, go listen to somebody. It's not your family, 
Um, but a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, if you see them out mowing the yard, just wave at them, ask them how they're doing. Um, and, and if you get an opportunity, ask them, you know, there's a lot of problems in the world right now. What do you, what's most concerning to you? Don't try to solve it. Just hear what they say and uh, report back to us. Send us an email at podcast at letsfixthis.org or you can hit us up on Twitter at Let's Fix This. Okay. We will be back next week. Uh, we have another guest next week. Um, we're going to have Sarah Jane Rose and Alyssa Fisher from Sally's List. Uh, They're always interesting and insightful. So I hope that'll be um, on your agenda. And also, uh, maybe while you're talking to your neighbors, tell them about this cool podcast and tell them they should uh, subscribe to Let's Pod This. Um, they have good people. They have moderately adequate insights and uh every every month they say one thing that's funny that's all you gotta tell them that's it's a low bar really to have a podcast all right and um also remember listeners that decisions are made by those who show up uh, and find a way to do that have a great week <laughs>